headed towards Resurrection Sunday of Behold the King. And we have this, this, this introduction to us from um, this story that is found in at least three, maybe four of the Gospels, depending on which theologian you're listening to, of this woman who takes this very expensive perfume and she pours it on Jesus' head. That's because you said cowboys. The Lord didn't like that. The Lord didn't like that. Um, you know, God has a way, you know what I'm saying? He got a way. He got a way. Anyway. <laughs> but this woman takes this extravagant gift worth one year's total sum of her salary of anybody's earning, pours it on Jesus' head. And what they didn't understand was that she was preparing the Savior for burial, that she was anointed the true priest uh, for office, that she was bringing the most precious gift, um, and she was discipling us. The only gift that was fitting for a king was really all that we had. And so we saw this extravagant worship. Um, and the reason why we're kind of tying it together is because we want to do a little bit of Christological work. Everybody say Christological. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Now you sound real RTS covenant. You sound real seminarian right there. You know what I'm saying? We're doing some Christological work right now, which is basically we are trying to understand the person, the work, and the office of Jesus. And we cannot do that properly. You don't understand your Easter and your resurrection season until you understand Jesus Christ as the promised anointed king of Israel. That's who we are celebrating and we have to understand that our story, even our story of personal redemption fits inside of this grander story of Jesus being the Messiah and the anointed one. And so what we did very lightly was just kind of try to give a little teaser about um, kind of how we are connected to the Old Testament and what they were waiting on. And really, we did some of that work in our discipleship hour, just wanting you to think, like, is what you're waiting on what the Old Testament people are waiting on? It should be. It's all the same story, right? You know, some people would even dare to say, oh, we don't need the Old Testament to preach the gospel. Well, what, what Bible are you preaching from? It's all connected. If you're a good Presbyterian, then you know it. We believe in something called covenant theology, right? That it's, the Bible is really telling one story. There's one art to the whole thing. There's one hero, right? It's all pointing to Jesus. And he's all kind of doing the same thing for all of his constituents and all those who would follow him. So this Sunday, we're going to talk about how, how this king came in, you know what I'm saying, and what he came to do. Um, and next week, we'll kind of finish up with what it all means for us and how do we truly live in light of God's kingdom. Now, last week we started, we said if you were doing Holy Week, Holy Week proper kind of starts here, right? This is when we would say, oh yeah, Palm Sunday, this kind of kicks off Holy Week. But we knew, that, and at least what we taught last week is that, hey, there was something that happened. What happened was Jesus would come, it would almost be like, hey, the, um, you know, what, what was the um, thing that Dion said he wasn't going to play in no more? TSU and, um, what is that, Jackson State? Yeah, 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 you know what I'm saying? That, that's the biggest thing that I've kind of seen in Memphis. I made a mistake one day, and I tried to drive in Midtown and get me some uh, chicken when the classic was going on. And that was like a four-hour trip. It was like, oh, la, right? 
but it would be like outsiders. Every, this is Passover week in Jerusalem. Everybody's coming to celebrate Passover. Um, I'm, you're, I'm not talking about a couple people. You're talking about droves of people. And what we know is that Jesus probably did the smart thing. He was like, man, I'm not staying inside the loop. I'm going to go get me a hotel in Collierville. You know what I'm saying? I'm going to go get me a hotel in, in Germantown. That's what Jesus did, right? He went to Bethany, and that's where he set up camp with him and his disciples, right? And they were making a two-mile trek in and out of Jerusalem throughout the week. That's just how you need to understand how this thing is working. There are droves of people, of Jews there, who are there to celebrate the miracle of Passover, but they're not just there to celebrate the miracle of Passover. If you're a Jew and you have read your old te- uh, of the law, and if you have le- learned from the prophets, then everybody's there anticipating this coming king too. They're not just celebrating how, how, how things worked out for them in Egypt and how God delivered them with a mighty strong hand and an outstretched arm. They're all also anticipating that someone is coming too. It's probably brimming. You know what I'm saying? They're like, man, is, it, is this the time? I don't know, girl. It's, maybe he's coming. I don't know. Maybe not. But I'm ready for him. Anybody ready for him? Come on, man. Come on. So the people are here. And so now, not that Tucker didn't do a good job. But I want to reread these 11 verses with a messianic lens and see if we can catch some of these prophetic either citations or allusions. I'm getting ahead of myself, but I just want to help you. Once again, as we become better Bible readers and expositors, what you are going to find out as you read your New Testament, especially when I was in seminary, the first first class I took was the Gospels. It was the best way I could have started my seminary journey. We're starting with the place where Jesus was, and we read a book by Richard Hayes called Reading Backwards. Because all, what you have to understand is literally most of the New Testament are literally direct quotations of the Old Testament or allusions back to it. That's what's happening here. And so we're going to read it just a little more slowly and see if we can catch some of those citations and quotations and allusions. And then I'm just going to spend the rest of our time kind of unpacking what all this kingly business means for us. So verse 1 just starts here. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethage on the Mount of Olives. Pause. What do we know about the Mount of Olives? Let's go to Zechariah 14.4. Zechariah 14 is just a passage about the day of the Lord. This is an eschatological passage that's being written to God's people probably in exile or on their way. And it says, On that day his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem on the east. And on the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. So if you know anything, if you were a Jew and you knew anything about the Messianic prophecies, then you would know that the Mount of Olives is a very important geographical place for you. That one day, whoever was promised is going to stand there. So you think Matthew including this Mount of Olives is by, it's just by happenstance? Nah, right? So it wasn't just, just that Jesus is riding on his donkey. It's where he's coming from. Jesus came and he's now kind of approached on the side of the Mount of Olives. He sends two disciples, verse 2, and he says to them, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. And this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet, right? Let's pause right there. One of the things we know, I think this is Matthew 1:21, even in the first chapter, Matthew said all of these things were done to fulfill 
the prof, what the prophets had said. Matthew has a very upfront fulfillment formula. He, he will remind you a lot when things are, ha I'm including this so that you know somebody foretold it and it's coming to pass right now. When you read back through your gospels, you should look for the fulfillment formulas. All of the gospel evangelists um, make wonderful use, like I said, of these quotations and the allusions. And it's all over the story. So this whole idea, verse 5, that Jesus comes in gentle riding on a donkey. This has all been prophesied. Zechariah 9 and 9. This is, Zechariah 9 is a whole chapter on the coming king of Zion. It says, verse 9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I would suggest to you that it's highly likely when Jesus told his disciples go get the donkey he knew exactly what he was doing that wasn't even happen since he's like hey it's time I'll get to that later I'm a little ahead of myself Isaiah 62 and 11 another illusion behold the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth say to the daughter of Zion behold your salvation comes behold his reward is with him and his recompense before him I'll skip down after Matthew tells us, and he quotes Zechariah, he goes on to say, verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while other cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. What is all this business about, about taking cloaks? Once again, this is an illusion. This is 2 Kings chapter 9. Jehu now becomes king of Israel, and this is what they say. Then in haste, every man took of them, took his garment, and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed Jehu as king. Jesus now knows what's going on. And then what our worship team just got through singing, verse 9, the crowds went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, what'd they shout, y'all? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. So what are you saying when y'all are saying Hosanna? Are y'all saying, what y'all saying? Do you know what you're saying? Turn your neighbor and say, I don't know. I don't really know. It's about Jesus. It's like hallelujah, right? Kind of. I don't know. The transliteration for Hosanna in the Hebrew is save we pray. Save us, we pray. It's actually a prayer. Save us, we pray. Psalms 118, verse 25. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This is a very specific prayer to a deliverer from a people who are in bondage and in exile, who are wandering, who are sojourning. They're praying to a rescuer, save us. I wonder if people in this room need saving. I don't know, we'll get to that later. Verse 10, so when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. 
I was teaching the um, teenage discipleship hour, and I think Lily Iron was like, I was, we were going through all these kind of messianic verses and Christological verses and trying to prime them up on some of the stuff that we talked about last week. And I said, man, what's the big, big huggable? Why is there all this talk about um, Jesus is the Christ and is he the Christ? And that passage in John where John, uh, uh, um, that John's disciples came to um, Jesus and said, hey, man, we about to go back and talk to John. Are you the one that was promised or should we look for another? I love that scripture. He's like, man, don't be wasting our time. Are you the one that we've been talking about for all of Israel's history, or should we be looking for somebody else? And I said, why is, why is there all this hugaboo? Because, y'all, if you, don't, uh, you, you, if you don't pay attention, you might miss it. The whole identity of Jesus and rightly identifying him is really the whole point. And if you miss it, you miss the whole thing. We got to make sure that we rightly identify the king. And we need to read these passages like, man, how many people missed him? And I said it in the last sermon. I'll say it again. And we don't need to read them arrogantly like, man, I can't believe they missed him. We need to read it with a little bit more humility and say, man, I guess he could be pretty easily missed. Come on, y'all. I know I'm preaching. It's all good. So I want to do three things. Now that I've given you the historicity, I've kind of painted the chronology of what happened. I just want to tell you why this is a big deal. I want to tell you that Jesus made a public announcement. I want to highlight how he made that public announcement. And I want to tell you what he actually announced, okay? I just want to say he made a, a public announcement. I think it's important for us to understand briefly how he made that announcement, and then we want to announce, we want to tell you what actually is he announcing, all right? So let's, let's, let's do what we got to do. First of all, um, I told you before, um, this is the big idea. One of the cool things as you read the gospel, it's like there's a messianic secret, you know what I'm saying? Um, I told you, I've been watching The Chosen. Y'all should get you some Chosen, you know what I'm saying? It's just, it's just, I haven't found anything funky or wonky yet, you know what I'm saying? Just get you some. It's an adaptation, so everything is not as it was, it happened back then, but I think you catch, you just, it just, you get to put some meat on the bones, you just get some ideas and some people, it just makes it a little fun, at least for me. But anyway, you know, Jesus is now, at least one of the, uh, the last episodes, he's, he's done something and he's told them, it's not my time yet. Shh. Just wait. Wait. Don't tell anybody yet what's happened to you, what's been done to you. It's not my time yet, right? And so we know we did that. At least for two and a half, two and a quarter years, Jesus has kind of kept his ministry on the, on the hush. At least the, the fact, the blatant idea that he is the Messiah, he's like, I don't want that announced yet. But when Jesus says, hey, it's Zechariah time. Hey, my boys, we coming down from the Mount of Olives. Hey, my boys, go get the donkey. He's coming out, y'all. He coming out, y'all. He making it public, man. There is no more secret. You know, there's a part in John, I believe that's John, where the, you, there's a dramatic shift in the narrative of the gospel when it's literally like four words where he says, he turned his head towards Jerusalem. You need to know right then, all the plan was over with. It's time now. When he was going to Jerusalem, he was actually going to his throne, which had to be earned through his death. 
but there was no more hiding. There was no more demonstration. There's no more teaching. What I've come here to do, now I'm getting ready to do. You need to feel this dramatic shift. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he's not just coming like he came when he was 12 years old and he was sitting in the temple and he was exchanging theological banter. He ain't coming like a little child no more. When he got on the donkey, he making the announcement, I'm here now. Now I want you to understand the tension because I don't, I'm about to get to how he came, but I don't, I can't move past. I, listen, if you, all you get out of Palm Sunday is that he came in on a donkey, you're missing it. Don't let the donkey detract you from Jesus making this emphatic statement. I'm the king of the world. See, that's what throws us off. That's what makes him the best king. That's what makes him who he is because I'm over all ahead of myself. Who chooses to announce that they're king of the world on a donkey? See, that's what messes you up. But don't look past the fact that that's exactly what he's doing. This is not a very mousy thing he's doing at all. Actually, this is not a very, like, oh, Jesus. This is not his, his most emphatic moment for a servant leadership. This is him saying, I'm here. He's making a public announcement. The secret is over it. The state, how he comes is gentle and lowly, but the statement is about as brash as possible. All the Jews gathered, the thousands and droves of Jews gathered in Jerusalem, and now somebody's claiming to be the anticipated king. There could be nothing more emphatic about this statement, y'all. As a matter of fact, just for gravity, you need to go back to Matthew 2. And I, I think you need to sit where Herod sat, who was so willing to, to, to deny someone's claim on the king that he was willing to commit genocide. I think you need to feel that in Palm Sunday at the same time. Because Herod knew more than we knew sometimes. Herod knew the stakes better than we know them sometimes. I can't let this dude become king because that has some real ramifications for me. Do you understand the weight of Jesus becoming king of the cosmos? I know he your friend. I know he your homeboy. But do you really understand he's transcending me? Who man. So there's only one thing Keller says you can do. When Jesus comes in riding on the donkey, there's only one thing you can do. When somebody says they're the king of the world, either you're going to hate them or you're going to submit to them. There's only two choices. You can't be indifferent to that. Oh, yeah, don't worry about him. Nobody's doing that. You either got to kill him or you got to say you are it. What's your choice today? Keller even goes on to say, either you're going to king me or you're going to have nothing to do with me. Either I'm your king or I'm nothing to you. Don't let the donkey fool you. Either I'm your king or I'm nothing to you. But this is the conundrum we're in. 
because we were talking and we were like, man, what do kings do? And somebody just busts out, kings kill people. It's like, mm, yeah. But they understand, like, kings have power. They have authority. They, you know, they can flex and they, they dominate and they rule. But this is what makes this thing so crazy because the king of the world chooses a donkey to ride in on. And it's like, oh, just the most docile of all the little beasts out there. I'm gonna get me a little donkey. This is not, you know, those people who choose to come in with the military army and flex their power. This is not somebody coming in, you know, Prince Ali, come on, man, you know where I'm at. You know where I'm at. You know where I'm at. Come on. Do I gotta cite the prophet Aladdin in here today? This is, this is how you would have announced, like, I'm here in power, I'm here in force, both economic and militaristic power. But the juxtaposition is like, this dude is literally in here coming on a little donkey. Why? Why the donkey? Because if you have your Bible, you know, most of them would cross-reference this verse with Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, the one we love to quote, because our God is gentle and lowly. And his yoke is easy and it's light. And I think the idea here is just for us to understand that our God is going to become king. And the misnomer is you can't be in his kingdom if you don't want to be ruled by him. That just is what it is. Figured out one other day. But here's the thing. He's not going to come, that humble donkey that he comes in on, that's the, it signifies the way that he is going to acquire the fealty and the devotion of his subjects. See, most kings come in, they're going to dominate you. And if, and if you ain't get it right, they're going to kill you and throw you out of there. But see, he's just kind of foreshadowing how he's going to achieve the loyalty and the devotion. He's like, hey, I'm a lowly king. As a matter of fact, I'm not going to destroy my subjects. I'll die for them. That's what it is. So, you see, that's the way it works. You know what I'm saying? Because now the loyalty and the, and the obedience comes out of love. It's like, man, our king, though he has the right to demand our allegiance, he earns it. It's, it's, what, we, it's what we carry around on our fingers. I'm not with Gina because she's holding a gun to my head. My affection and my loyalty is an expression of my love. And if I was unfaithful, you wouldn't have me as your pastor. They kicked me out of the denomination because hey, something's wrong. Because if you don't have the obedience to validate your love, then do you really love at all? See, when the Bible says we we love because we've first been loved. This is what you need to understand. This is why obedience should be a natural part of your progression. Not because, man, I gotta do right. It's because you understand this. He could have demanded I do anything. But he literally died for me so that my devotion to him would be something that gave me delight. Come on, man. He's gentle and lowly. You don't know no kings like this. You know, I remember when the Donald, when he became 
when he announced that he was running. You know, well, he, I think when the Donald, he was in the Trump Tower, you know what I'm saying? He was on the Escalades and the gold and, you know, doing his thing. You know, listen, man, one thing I got to say about Donald, he going to do it big. Whatever he going to do, he going to do it big. You know what I'm saying? And I'll be honest with you, if I was to run for anything, I'd probably do it on Donald's scale. You know what I'm saying? You know, I give me a eight. <laughs> I give me the HBCU band. I get the old man. You know, we gonna, we gonna, we gonna, we gonna do it. You know what I'm saying? Why we, why waste our time if we not gonna do it up? You know, anyway. But, you know, also making these announcements, you know, the best we could do is like American politicians, when they come out, they tell you kind of, hey, this is what we gonna do. You know, put me in office and this is what we gonna do it. I'm gonna do this and I'm gonna slash that and I'm gonna do this and do that. But you gotta remember, when we start talking about the good news and we start talking about Greco-Roman first century and when people start, start to announce that, hey man, I'm a king. First of all, this is not a democratic society. Nobody is excited about new challengers to their authority, side Herod. This is a very bold thing Jesus is doing. Jesus already ups, upset the whole Jewish religious leadership order. Y'all do realize things are at such a fever pitch that you got Rome, you got all the Jewish denominations. They've all said, man, we got to get rid of this dude. Y'all do realize that, right? Jesus is ultra controversial. But Jesus... There's this cool video in the Bible project they do about the gospel. And they pull it out of Isaiah and say, when you, when you start in Romans 10, once again, another quotation of Isaiah, beautiful are the feet of those who carry the gospel, the good news. Said what you kind of need to have in mind is that when somebody is doing that kind of thing, beautiful are the feet, that there's usually somebody who has been previously at a battlefield. And there's been some kind of major victory that's happened, but it was definitive and it has changed things ultimately for the fates of one nation or another. And so essentially, this person has ran some miles to let the people know who were besieged or whatever, good news, good news, good news. And you can kind of hear it faintly, but as they get closer and they're out of breath, good news. They're bringing you good news that something has been accomplished that now changes our fortunes. Something has been accomplished. That is now changing our present and our future. Amen, somebody. So what is it that Jesus is actually announcing? When he's stepping, he is literally embodying the gospel. So we say the gospel, Jesus is embodying the gospel when he's making the statement that I am the king. But what has he conquered? Because we know Rome goes on for years after Jesus' death. We know that though Israel is kind of what it is now as some kind of nation state, it's not what we've pictured it to be. So what actually has Jesus conquered? And was Herod trying to kill Jesus just because he would forgive people in 2023? 
What's the big deal about that? You got to ask yourself, what's going on here? I want to suggest to you that your understanding of the gospel, once again, you got to go back to understand where we are and how we going forward. First of all, Rome was never the target. The Jews missed it. We missed it. We always have a problem really trying to identify what is Jesus overthrowing here? So, you know, your auntie still, you know, when them, you know, we get them Democrats out of office, then the kingdom come. And see, we always have that kind of issue. You know, we always. Oh, you know what? You know, when, uh, when we finally get them, them, this nation to do what we want to do, then they, see, we always have some kind of I, misinformation of who the real enemy is, when the king is coming, how he's coming, what he's coming to set up. We always seem to get that a little bit confused, no matter what generation. But let's start right here. Paul tells us, as he is informing people on the early stages of the gospel, he says, Colossians 1.13, for he has rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the son he loves. What you need to understand is that there are two kingdoms that have always been at a clash with each other since the garden. And that, that Opposition has taken many forms over the millennia, but the, the fight remains the same. And it's never actually that nation versus this nation, and it's ever actually that person versus this person. The only fight that ever matters in this world is the kingdom of darkness versus the kingdom of light. And if you miss that, you will always be missed targeting your enemies you'll make enemies out the wrong people and you'll forget Ephesians 6 that we've never wrestled actually with flesh and blood there's two kingdoms there's the kingdom of darkness the kingdom of light and the war is not yet over in the sense that there are no there's no more fighting and what has happened when Jesus Christ marches in on the donkey, he is fulfilling the promise of a savior that is coming that is not limited to personal forgiveness. He's doing something so much bigger than that, y'all. Do you realize that? He's doing so. Our personal redemption is wrapped up in the, the bigger narrative of what God is doing. Luke 1.69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Jesus came to liberate. When Jesus comes in on the donkey, it is an emphatic statement to somebody that, hey, there is a new world order. I am ushering in my kingdom of peace and justice, and it might seem like it's moving slowly, but it's here, and it's only increasing. What? Some of y'all are like, well, I've already given my life to Jesus. What's he freeing me from? I was listening to one cat said, the modern view of freedom is, 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 is this idea of negative liberty, right? Where it's, as long as I have no one telling me what to do, um, I got the, the freedom to choose to go to Gus's or Popeye's and I'm free. I live in America. America. And as long as I pay my taxes, I got my own yard and I got my, ch -ch -ch, you know what I'm saying? Everybody got to buck up because I'm free. Miracle. Liberty. 
If that's what you have restricted your understanding of freedom to, you are missing the biblical narrative. And that guy who came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey ain't doing nothing for you right now. Because here's what the Bible tells us. Is that you can literally be an entrepreneur, work for yourself, make your own schedule, make your own food, and you can still be a slave, can't you? You can live the rest of your life and not take one order from nobody else and you could still be a slave. First John 3 and 8. How am I still a slave, Pastor Tim? The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning and the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Somebody need to highlight it, circle it. It seems super weird and spiritual, but I'm telling you, this is what Israelites were missing. They were like, oh, my Messiah is going to overthrow Herod. My Messiah is going to make it so every black person on the face of the earth never have to suffer again. My Messiah going to switch it up so there'll be no poverty no more. See, if you don't understand where the Bible trying to take you, you're going to start misappropriating things. The big work that Jesus is emphatically destroying is the work of the devil. And his ability to set up reign through sin. That is what he is already begun to destroy and that's what he will continue to destroy. The devil, let's talk about him. John 8, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. Listen to this, y'all. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. What, what is the problem? What is the rule and reign of the devil? That he is setting up his territory through misinformation and lies. And that has the world in the predicament that it is in. It is literally the lies of the enemy. It's all lies. We spent, uh, me, Sabas, and Copa, and a couple others, we were in uh, our intro to pastoral counseling class yesterday. And it's so funny, they got to the part on depression, and the lady was, um, who was uh, presenting to us was saying, hey, listen, you know, they really don't have a scientific answer to where depression comes from. They know that, you know, it's, it's chemically, it manifests because there are kind of lower levels of this or whatever. But you go ask them, they don't really understand. They don't understand where it come from. They say what happens is they're just intrusive thoughts that just come and people start ruminating on the thoughts. And it becomes their reality. Whether it's real or imagined, it becomes the lens by which they see their world. There's a video that we watched from the CDC about a little black dog. It's a, an excellent video. You should go watch it. 
And, it, and it, it's this guy, he just has a little black dog. He didn't know where it came from or where, when it leaves or whatever. All of a sudden, the dog just gets bigger and it makes life harder to manage. But they don't know where the dog actually came from, where it's going, what it's here to do. I know what the dog name is. And I ain't here for it, actually. It's all lies. The devil has been lying and murdering from the beginning. What's the beginning? From the garden. This is, this is what God came. He's reversing that, yo. The king is reversing the effects of the fall. When the devil came in and started lying to God's creation. He is now, he came, his body was on that cross to turn that tide for us. So that we legally do not have to submit to the lies of the devil. You know, you know when you're a kid, that's what mess you up when you're a little kid. And your homeboys are like, you know, used to happen to me a lot. I'm not a real good basketball player. I'm a football player. But you know, little middle schoolers, they mean now. So we go to recess, Sean, and uh, man, we be hooping. And whoo, God, you know, it was a struggle. You know, I missed a couple shots. Yeah, I missed a couple shots. And you know, the middle school kids be like, bro, you horrible at basketball. Bro, you need to go over there with them girls, and you this, and you that. And man, you don't even never need to touch a basketball again. I'm talking about they get after me. And you know what? You know, as a middle schooler, you, you know, what do you do? Either you fight them, or you withdraw, and then you go sit with yourself. And it's like, man, maybe I don't ever need to touch a basketball again. Because maybe what they're saying is true. And I have no basis by which to argue with them. It's all subjective. What Jesus came and did for us when he rode in on that donkey was an objective statement. I'm the king and I got kids. And my kids got rights. That's what he came to do. That it didn't matter what generation you grew up in. It didn't matter what tyranny you were under. It didn't matter who was your president. If you knew you were God's child, that meant everything to you. And there's certain things that you had to take and there's certain things that you don't have to take. I heard a man say, because the devil is the liar, that's where he gets his power from. He's a murderer. He's a liar. It's his native language. That's what he's been speaking from the beginning. He's been, he's been tying up God's people for forever. Anybody tired of that? I mean, literally, anybody is tired of that? And if you feel like you alone, I'm here to tell you. The whole redemptive history is to tell you. The devil been twisting us up forever. But I'm tired of that, y'all. It didn't stop with Eve. It didn't stop with Adam. So tired of it. But here's how we give the devil his power. When we believe the lies, we empower the devil. Satan has no authority unless we give it to him. You need to realize that Satan has a plan for your life. 
He was a murderer. He's been trying to seek, kill, and destroy for forever. He has a plan for your life. And he wants to use you to continue to tarnish this world and these beautiful people made in God's image. And Satan's primary work is to get you to doubt God's goodness and make you think that the grass is greener on the outside of his will. That's his primary thing. It's what he did in the garden. It's what he's doing now. Hey, can you really trust him? You know, I know that you, you know, you got this going on, that going on. But you know, can you, if, if you were to step out on faith, can you really believe that? Is he really good to you? Does he really care about you? When they were on that boat in the middle of the sea and Jesus is asleep, what is their thing? Does he care that we're perishing? Some of y'all are at that point of frustration. And I'm, I'm, I'm just telling you, you don't need to be afraid of that. I think you're on your way to a breakthrough. You've pushed yourself to the point where you ain't doing cute religious church no more. You ain't, it, it's not satisfying to you to come in here and learn things. You're at that point. Is this real? Does this make any difference in my life now? And I'm saying, yes, press into that. Press into that. Because the king who came in riding on a donkey got something to say about that. The devil can only legally operate where we have not either yielded to Jesus with obedience or areas where we do not fully trust. Let me just pause for a second. If you're like me, then you know that the devil at times gets you twisted up. He gets you twisted up. And you're not moving out into world in strength and confidence and joy and hope and light then you know that's him twisting things up. He's twisting things up. And the way that he's twisting things up is he's getting access to your life either through your sin life, things that's unconfessed, where you refuse to obey Jesus. He's saying, go, and you're saying, no, I'm still doing my thing. You know, we talked about that before, that sin and the assurance of salvation can't live in the same bed together. You know what I'm saying? It's like when you get in the pool and you're drowning and they say, don't panic. You know what I'm saying? You know, I was little, and I'm like, oh, I'm drowning! I'm drowning! And you know, somebody come in the pool, and they try to help me out, but they end up fighting the people you're trying to help you. He's like, come on, help! You know what I'm saying? That's what happens when you got sin, and you're trying to ask for God's blessing on your life. You're trying to fight the man who in the pool trying to help you. Don't be asking for God's blessing if you're not willing to submit. All right, Lord, I failed to, today, but I'm going to try again tomorrow. Amen. But you should never be in a posture of whatever. I'm going to just do me, but God, and you mad at God for He, because you, you can't have his peace. Now, now, what kind of sense does that make, y'all? Listen, we good parents. I am a good parent. And don't none of my children get rewarded for disobedience. Am I right? There's things that are done just because. But none of my children get rewarded for disobedience. He gets access through our sin. Then he gets access. This is the more important one, I think, today. He gets access where we do not fully trust. 
where there are areas of our lives that are dominated by fear and pride and the unwillingness to, you know, I used to, <laughs> I used to get so mad, as you know, y'all are better parents than I am. I'm a good parent, but y'all are better parents than me. I was trying to teach my, my kids how to swim. Some of them, how many of y'all know that that was a season? Ooh, Jesus. And you know, especially because, you know, the, st- <laughs> the stigma, you know. But these black people can swim. Amen. 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 Baby, you can't swim. Okay, Gene can't swim. <laughs> but I, I'm trying to teach my kids to swim, and I'm like, J- jump in. And then mug's like, nope. I said, get in this pool. And, and at some point, we all joke aside because I do think like daddy is standing in the water. My, I'm only five foot eight. My navel is above the water. Jump in this water. And then at some point, I internalize it as it's like, oh. This is a strike against my character. If you don't trust me, that you could jump in a pool that I'm standing in, if you don't think I love you enough to protect you in this, I take it personal. Now, I could be right or wrong, but I'm just telling you, that's how I take it. I love you. What wouldn't I do for you? You are my child. How much more? the one who gave his very life for us. See, I don't have receipts for my kids. All I can do is tell them I love you. But every time you see a cross, what, does, what should that do to the questions of whether or not God cares for you? Does he actually love me? Oh, I, yeah, that's, yeah. Haven't I showed you? Haven't I proven it to you? Wasn't that his indictment in Micah? It's like, man, y'all don't remember how I bore you on eagle's wings? Y'all don't remember how there was a billion-gallon sea? Who split that for you? But you don't think I care about you. And it's right there where the conversation doesn't end. It's right there where the enemy says, but I'll take it from here. And now... I can force them to live out of that lie that they actually don't have a God who cares for them, that they're on their own, and they got to figure out how to make it on their own. Some of y'all need to get delivered from that lie today. You profess, you sing all these songs about Jesus, but you're struggling in the care and love department. You are struggling. You're like, God, thank you for the forgiveness. I'll catch you when we get to heaven, but right now I got to do what I got to do. Jesus wants to deliver you this Easter. Galatians 5.1, for freedom Christ has set us free. In John 8.31, it says, to the Jews who have believed in him, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How could you say that you're going to set us free? Very truly, I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. 
This is just the perfect example of how they were missing the whole thing. Oh, there comes our king. He's riding in. He's going to destroy this. He's like, yeah, because we Abraham's kids, and we ain't never been nobody's slaves. He's like, you bonehead. Every human being on the face of this planet, if they're not yielded to my will, they're a slave to the anyone, to the evil one. But Jesus changes that story. When the king comes in riding on the donkey, he comes in to change that story. He comes in to deliver. And our freedom is both instantaneous and it's ongoing. Our deliverance from sin and the territory that the devil has seized in our life, you know? I, I, I just, I kind of like following war and stuff like that and just, it's kind of like my area of history. I like reading about it or whatever. And even if you kind of been following Ukraine and Russia, you know that, hey man, there's territory that, it's always about territory and reclaiming it. It's like, you make these advancement, but can you hold the position you just took? And oh, they just took it back and now they have the legal right to do whatever they're doing. And in our lives, you need to understand, Galatians 5 talks about that this war between the flesh and the spirit is always going on. And there's always this kind of chess match that's happening inside of us. Some of us know exactly what I'm talking about. And this is a part of our sanctification. Us growing in godliness is when that more square footage of our lives belongs to King Jesus. And then at times, we get ourselves twisted up whether through sin or fear and pride, and then the devil tries to come in and he tries to take a little more territory back. And then we gotta expel him, don't we? He's like, uh-oh, you don't belong here. I, I was listening to a man who essentially said, some of us have grown so accustomed to the, de the, to the devil in our spaces that we forgot he doesn't belong there. You ever walked in your house and you seen shoes and places and stuff and you're like, oh, you know where it goes, but then a couple months later, it's still there and you just think, oh, that's just where it goes now. I'm here to tell some of y'all this Easter season that you have legal right to get some things rearranged in your life. And I came here this Easter season to tell God's people I didn't come here to recount to you another Easter dramatization. I came to tell God's people in 23, you can be free again. Amen. That the guy riding in on the coat has come to liberate. It is the same thing he promised to do in Genesis 3.15 when he came and said, I came to step on the head of that serpent. It's the same thing he's promising right now that I can liberate you and I can give you life and you can have it to the full and you do not have to live under the tyranny of the devil's lies. The conquering king of the universe comes in riding on a coat and he knows your name. That's what's so crazy. The king of the cosmos knows your name. Does that do anything for you? That the liberating king has announced his kingdom to the world, and he's still proclaiming liberty to the captives. He's still proclaiming liberty to me. 
when he rose from the grave, it's the promise that there is new life in me. There's a resurrected part of me. And he came truly to destroy my greatest enemy, the devil. I can be free today. Do you believe that today? Do you believe it today? One of the things we do in Presbyterianism, one of the things we do is subtle. Sometimes we do a prayer confession. Some of y'all are like, man, here he go with that crazy mumbo jumbo. I don't know what he's talking about. The devil, he trying to be super spiritual. I just want to remind you, especially some of y'all career Presbyterians. One of the things we do is we pause in the middle of worship and we pray a prayer of confession. And we say we pause. Close your eyes, bow your heads, sit in your seats. Confess your sins silently. And then, you know what we have the nerve to do? We got the nerve after about 30, 45 seconds to say, all right, raise your heads. And we start quoting from Scripture. We say, hey, there is now for no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Yeah. See, but if, you, if you've been so rote and routine, you'll forget, you'll, you'll miss what's actually happening. At the end of a wedding, when I married the Viegas, I said, by the authority invested in me as a minister of the gospel in the state of Tennessee, I now pronounce you. Which the idea is like, yo, can't no ordinary Tom, Dick, and Harry just come up here and just say, y'all married. I'm operating under a certain kind of authority that is able to declare officially that you are now husband and wife. And when I stand before God's people, I say, confess your sins. And when I say there is no, therefore no condemnation in Christ Jesus, I am operating under the authority that the king has murdered condemnation. That the devil's power over your life to keep you convicted about your sin and how much you do and whether or not you qualify, he has murdered the accuser and it's over with. We declare that over your life. We declare that over your life. And we stand here without being super spiritual and we stand in authority and we mean it now I want to stretch your thinking just a little bit because the gospel it includes your forgiveness but it's so much broader than that that your shepherd king said that he actually came that you have life and have it to the full too And I'm not talking about new cars and new houses or whatever, but especially the posture of your heart. That you don't have to be anxious for anything. That you can cast your cares upon him and he will care for you. That is a promise and that is just as sure as the absolution of your sin. If you don't believe it, you don't understand your Bible. How are you going to believe that your sins have been absolved and Jesus trying to tell you, you can cast your cares on me, I can keep you in perfect peace and you don't believe that. There's something contradicting the faith, yo. Yeah. 